I'd like to warn you about the explicit nature of the show, but I'll just hint that you know what you're in for, making this an implicit explicit warning. It's Tuesday, January 12th, 2021. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Perhaps you've been hearing that the riot in the Capitol was an aberration, a deviation, an exception, an inaccurate reflection of who we are. If you haven't been hearing that, well, these gentlemen will say it. This is not who we are. This is not what the, the conservatives do. Uh, this, is, this is often what we see on the left, and we all condemn it. We are better than this in Utah. We are better than this in America. Jamie Dimon, on this ongoing situation in D.C., I can bring it to you now. He says, quote, I strongly condemn the violence in our nation's capital. This is not who we are as a people or a country. We're better than this. That was Charlie Kirk, Utah Governor Spencer Cox, and the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon. So a guy I loathe, a guy I like, and a guy who's rich. Many, many, many of their fellow Americans and a Frenchman, as you'll hear, agree with them. Uh, and we're better than this, George. Uh, as a country, we're better than this. We can debate better than this. Governor Kim Reynolds issued a statement. She called behavior from the pro-Trump rioters unacceptable and not who we are as Americans. No, this is not us. And you, we all know that this is not us. This is not America. And we know we're better than this. These were rioters and insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. They do not represent America. I just wanted to express our friendship and our faith in the United States. What happened today in Washington, D.C. is not America, definitely. The scenes of chaos at the Capitol do not reflect a true America, do not represent who we are. What happened with the attack on our Capitol, you know, with people that are just out of control is despicable. And for crying out loud, this makes us look terrible beyond belief. Um, This is wrong. This is not who we are as a nation. Uh, rhetoric has real consequences. People's lives are at risk. This has to stop, and he has to—he's got to go to the American public and tell them to stop this. This is not who we are. This is not who his supporters are. This is more than politics. The president of the bishops' conference, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, stated, "Quote: This is not who we are as Americans. This isn't who we are. We are better than this." Well, I'd have to say there is some evidence to the contrary. I could put together a case that we are exactly as good as this, which is to say not very good. If we were better than this, we, Americans, wouldn't have done this. But we did. And as far as this isn't America or this isn't what America stands for, I think of a book that came out a couple of years ago by Kurt Anderson called Fantasyland. Its premise, I'll quote from it. Little by little for centuries, then more and more and faster and faster during the past half century, we Americans have given ourselves over to all kinds of magical thinking, anything goes relativism, and belief in fanciful explanation, large and small fantasies that console or thrill or terrify us. Want some examples? Anderson provides. A quarter of Americans believe in witches. Almost a quarter believe that vaccines cause autism. Two-thirds of Americans believe that, quote, angels and demons are active in the world. A third of us believe in global warming being a hoax. 15% believe that, quote, media or the government adds secret mind-controlling technology to television broadcast signals. Another 15% think, nah, that might be possible. And, of course, a third still approve of Donald Trump. Now, to be fair, that last poll is an outlier, meaning it could be more than a third. 
Maybe politicians, some of the few individuals who get their jobs by a popular vote, need to believe in the wisdom and judgment of the populace. Maybe they need to be blind to the mass delusions of play. Maybe they've just got really strong outreach in the witch community and aren't willing to topple over too many cauldrons. But I don't criticize the notion, sorry, the consoling lie that, quote, we're better than this in order to make the case that America is awful, or even that most Americans aren't appalled by the insurrection at the Capitol, because they are. I raise it to point out that almost no important or powerful person has come to terms with the truth. I mean, you heard in that montage, three governors, four members of Congress, the incoming Senate majority leader, the House minority leader, the president-elect. These are the very people we need solutions from. Many, many, many millions, tens of millions, maybe a hundred million of our fellow citizens are delusional or misguided or fantastically wrong. And these delusional, misguided citizens are and have been a defining characteristic of our country since its inception. America is unique among the developed world in its inclusion of large numbers of such thinkers into the political system. You could argue they are the political system. And to say otherwise, that might be the greatest fantasy of all. On the show today, I spiel about inducements to quiet incitements to riot. But first, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is a wealth of acrimony without much common ground. If yesterday Michigan stood in as America in microcosm from the perspective of insurrection, today we look at Pennsylvania as an example of acrimony. Disrupted elections, a riven legislature, partisan brinksmanship that seems to have no chance of cooling off. Reporter Katie Meyer is here to break down what Pennsylvania hasn't already broken. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, the state legislature, well, there was a tight race amid voting procedures that were shaped by the reality of the COVID pandemic. What happened was Jim Brewster of Allegheny County did, in fact, defeat Nicole Ziccarelli. 69-vote margin. It was close. Ziccarelli tried to get the court to throw out some of Brewster's votes. The court declined to do so on several levels. In fact, just this afternoon came what seems to be a final ruling. But the Republicans who control the Pennsylvania State Senate, they did not like this. They did not seat Brewster. And in fact, they took the gavel away from the Democratic lieutenant governor. And now, well, still kind of a chaotic mess. Joining me now is Katie Meyer. She reports on Philadelphia and Pennsylvania politics for the Philadelphia Public Radio Station, WHYY. Hello, Katie. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So we'll get to the big ruling today, but could you set the scene of a few days ago with uh, gavel grabbing and disaffected Republicans not taking, not willing to accept the results of the vote? Yeah, yeah, I'll try to set the scene. And I should say, I wasn't there on the floor. I'm reporting on this remotely like most people are. So, um, you know, I I wish I had kind of seen this all go down in person. But uh, basically what happened was we kind of knew what the situation was going to be, you know, going into this swearing-in day. So the Senate's task was to swear in half of its senators who had been newly elected or re-elected. One of those senators who was on the floor 
was Jim Brewster. Now, Brewster is um, an incumbent Democrat, moderate, moderate guy, maybe the most conservative Democrat in the delegation. He's got a district out in western Pennsylvania. Um, it covers part of Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is, and also part of Westmoreland County, which is more conservative. And he was on the floor with everybody else with his Bible, but knowing that the Republicans did not plan on swearing him in. And they had said this ahead of time. They had said, basically, we believe that, you know, well, we have questions about this election. It has to do with um, mail ballots that were missing dates that were counted in Allegheny County, but not in Westmoreland County. And so they said, we've gotten petitions from the Republican candidate. We're waiting on a federal court decision. We're not seating Brewster. Democrats said, are, are you crazy? This has been adjudicated already. The state Supreme Court ruled on it. They said that the mail ballots that don't have dates can be counted. Brewster wins under that calculation because you got to understand the results of this race hinged on those ballots, which is why it was such a big deal. But right. and it was just a couple dozen ballots. So anyway, the, the Supreme Court said those ballots can be counted, even if they don't have dates. And then uh, the secretary of state uh, certified the election in Brewster's favor. So Democrats were like, this is done and dusted. you got to stop appealing it. And uh, so it kind of reached ahead. Again, we knew that the Republicans were going to do this. They do this all by, you know, majority vote. And they have a majority in the chamber with or without Brewster. So we knew that they could do it. But Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's now running for U.S. Senate, or at least is very, very seriously planning on doing that, he right. presides over the chamber as lieutenant governor. And he, I mean, he broke the rules, basically. There's this procedural, you know, vote that was happening. Republicans made a motion, and Fetterman uh, ignored it and wanted to call Brewster after Republicans voted not to. And uh, it kind of just devolved into a shouting match on the Senate floor. But uh, what ended up happening was um, the Republicans basically seized the gavel from Fetterman and cut off his microphone. There were still other Democratic members yelling on the floor, but uh, the Republicans carried on and uh, seated everyone except for Jim Brewster. Now, now seize the gavel from Fetterman, uh, the dude's 6'9", like 280, right? That, I have to say, to yeah, hard. yeah. They, they did not <laughs> physically seize the gavel. It's a procedural seizing. Um, uh -huh. So, yeah, it didn't come to blows, which is always nice. So you mentioned that Brewster um, serves a district that spans two counties. And in doing some research mm -hmm. for this, I found it fascinating that the different counties gave different and contradictory rulings about whether to accept envelopes that were received in time, but just d weren't dated on the outside of the envelopes. Yes. Yeah. So that seems weird. But <laughs> the case was that even with just one county accepting those envelopes, that did prove to be the difference why Brewster won by, you know, double-digit votes. If both counties had thrown out envelopes that were not dated on the outside, though received in time, then Ziccarelli would have won. That's kind of in the weeds, but I think also fascinating. Oh, yeah, it is totally fascinating. And that's when, you know, a local, or this isn't a local election, it's a state Senate election, but smaller elections like this, you really can get down to those tiny, tiny margins. And so, yeah, what had happened was there was a little bit of a back and forth over what was going to be acceptable. And you got to remember, this is Pennsylvania's second election using expanded no excuse mail voting. The first was the primary in June. And then so the presidential election when 
when Brewster and Ziccarelli were running, this was only the second time and by far the hugest election in which Pennsylvania had done something like this. So voters were grappling with a lot of new rules. Initially, you know, the state constitution says that basically the, the language, if we want to get really in the weeds, is that voters shall sign and date and etc. their mail ballots. And so that was taken to mean that you have to date it, otherwise maybe it's not valid. But that question of does it have to be thrown out hadn't been answered. And so the initial guidance that Kathy Bookfire, the Secretary of State, gave to counties was that, yes, it has to be dated. But then she revised that guidance and said, actually, if ballots aren't dated, you can count them, set them aside. We're, I'm sure we're going to have like, you know, court stuff on this. Set them aside, count them. You don't have to enter them into your totals right away. And we'll figure it out in the courts. Basically, that, I mean, that's not exactly what she said, but that was the intention. And so, of course, it went to the courts. The state Supreme Court ruled that you can count those ballots. But different counties ended up doing different things, largely based on partisan affiliation of the county commissioners. So Westmoreland, very Republican, didn't count those ballots. And Allegheny County, very Democratic, did. So that is where you got these weird discrepancies. And so then, you know, Ziccarelli's case on the federal level was based on the Equal Protections Clause of the U.S. Constitution, primarily, which is basically like similarly situated people have to be mm-hmm. treated the same in comparable situations. And so that was her, like, basically she's saying Westmoreland voters and Allegheny County voters in this district were treated differently. So the judge today finally ruled what we've been saying all along, that the uh, ballots shall count, saying because Ms. Ziccarelli's federal constitutional claims all depend on the invalidity of the ballots under state law, those claims necessarily fail on the merits. I would say, as a layman and not an expert, it seemed to be the kind of case that a a shot worth taking, not one of these, you know, laughable, making things up out of whole cloth, Kraken type cases. In fact, the case did succeed in one jurisdiction. So maybe there is an an exact um, parallel to what's going on on the national level. But still, this fight and this vote over not accepting the ballots happened on January 5th. The next day, we saw everything that went down in the Capitol. Are there any regrets in the Pennsylvania Republican delegation for how they acted on the state level in a similar circumstance of a case regarding not accepting the decision of voters? Uh, It's an interesting question. And certainly, I mean, you're absolutely right to draw that comparison because these conversations that we're having about voting and litigation over elections, especially if there's some question about the election, it's a federal mood and a federal sort of mode that Republicans are finding themselves in that absolutely has affected you know, how state Republicans in Pennsylvania are handling these things. I think you know, the way that they've gone about this case, I mean, I, who knows, maybe it would have been the same no matter what, but it seems colored by national rhetoric. That being said, so I don't necessarily think that it wouldn't be my take anyway that the Republicans in Pennsylvania feel that this has much to do with what happened at the Capitol. I mean, they, in their mind, this is a constitutional issue. They are, you know, exploring options that are available to them by law, they believe. And so they think it's it's totally fine, totally kosher. And as far as um, the blow up on the Senate floor goes, Republicans, again, like they control the chamber they have for decades, and that gives them a lot of leeway over the rules, too. And they treasure the rules of the Senate, you know, 
in large part because of that, because they kind of control them. Um, and again, that is how the chamber is set up. And so when, again, Fetterman did break the rules in trying to seat Brewster, they see this as like a really open and shut, like we are just doing, you know, our procedural rights and, you know, Fetterman's grandstanding, basically, is kind of what they think. They think he's doing it for political reasons. That's the tenor there. But and then Democrats, on the other hand, though, they say this like, you know, what Republicans wanted to do here is pretty unprecedented. And I, I don't think I said this before, but they had been exploring options for if the judge did not rule on the merits of the case. You just mentioned that he did. Um, and by the way, this is the judge that was appointed by President Trump. If he had not ruled on the merits of the case, they were considering basically making up their own decision. They, they say they have jurisdiction based on the Pennsylvania Constitution, which I think is a little bit debatable, but fundamentally true that they can decide whether their own members are fit to be seated. And so they were going to do something that I don't think has ever been done, at least in recent memory in the Senate, and consider at least seating Ziccarelli because they interpreted her case to be, the, you know, the right one. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, that we, I am still at the at the time that this is recorded. I'm waiting on comments from Senate Republicans on what the next steps are going to be for them. I don't know. But because Ranjan, this judge, ruled on the merits, it looks like they may have cut off that that last path they had left open for themselves to overturn it. Yeah. It would seem to me that this is the point where if they say we don't care what this judge says, that's where the parallel starts to become very close to what we saw in Washington, which is lost court cases and just simply not accepting the result. No open court cases, no open questions, just a rejection of what the courts have said if the Republicans in Pennsylvania take that step. I would say it would get more and more tenuous. And again, this is all hypothetical. We just don't know what they're going to do. And indeed, like their possible route for overturning this election was always hypothetical because they didn't know what the judge was going to do. There is a question, and again, maybe we'll know soon, of, of, of um, you know, the, basically Ranjan's, the judge's decision, it was based on, well, the state Supreme Court already made this ruling and I, um, sort of the first instance of a federal court, cannot, unless there's like really great cause, rule in the opposite direction. So he based his decision strongly on the Supreme Court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court, if, you know, Ziccarelli decides to appeal the case up to them, they're not really hemmed in in quite the same way. So we could see a different ruling there. And obviously those guys that they're controlled by Republicans. So I don't know if the Ziccarelli campaign intends to appeal this. Maybe we'll know by the time this episode comes out. But um, these are all, you know, a lot of moving factors here. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the U.S. Congress and the Pennsylvania delegation to the House of Representatives. Uh, Pennsylvania has 18 reps, nine Republicans, nine Democrats. Eight of the nine Republicans participated in the effort to not certify the election results from the Electoral College. That was their stance before the riots happened. But after the riots happened, no one changed their stance. It was still all eight saying, yes, we should at least have some sort of commission or question the election results. Do you get the sense that or have you heard any of them giving any ground as to that stance or saying anything about an openness to impeach, since they're in the House of Representatives, to impeach Donald Trump? Among the eight that voted to throw out Pennsylvania's election results, I have not seen a reversal, unless I'm missing something significant. Um, Mm. I I, I think 
the armed insurrection at the Capitol, it took some wind out of their sails. You know, the righteous, like, you know, we have questions about the election sales. Um, yeah, they all kind right. of started their remarks whenever they made remarks. They, saying, did, they, like, didn't, oh, bang, the they didn't bang the podium quite as often, for instance. No, they didn't. And they all kind of had to preface their their thoughts about possible election malfeasance by saying, like, I, I condemn violence. I don't want violence. But, you know, that being said, I mean, no, I think these guys were all pretty committed to the position that they had taken. And most of them did speak. I think one guy, Reschenthaler, who did vote to overturn the results, he's a, a Pittsburgh area guy. He didn't speak, which I thought was interesting because he's usually pretty open to speaking. But anyway, most of them did. They upheld the positions we thought they were going to uphold. The only Republican in Pennsylvania's delegation who did not vote to overturn the results was Brian Fitzpatrick, who's got a very moderate district down in southeastern Pennsylvania outside of Philly. And we knew that that was going to be the case, too. I, we, we knew he was not going to make that vote. This is what's interesting, I think, to a national audience, not just the uh, let's call them shenanigans in, Pens- mm. in Pennsylvania. But do you see any sign among the Republicans in the State House, the Republicans in Congress, Republican voters, do you see any sign that they have significantly changed uh, their stances, opinion, tone, or anything based on the insurrection at the Capitol? Pennsylvania is a funny state with this because it is, you know, as we saw in the presidential election, it's very divided. It's very purple. It's got some real different types of voters in it. And you see that in the congressional delegation. We're the only one that's evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. Listen, I think most of the positions that people took have remained. I would say, you know, the most interesting character in all of this, in my mind, is Pat Toomey, Pennsylvania's U.S. senator. He is a very conservative Republican who has never loved Donald Trump and has always been a little bit like... He's never really bucked him in a really significant way, but he's also clearly never loved him. And he is not running for re-election, which was a surprise when he announced it. And uh, he has said that he thinks Trump should resign. He said he thinks Trump is a demagogue. He also said that he supported Trump every step of the way and was sad that he lost. He has been sort of an interesting character in all this because he has broken a little bit differently than the rest of the very conservative Republicans who he has often been considered a member of. I don't know if he will vote for impeachment. That's kind of an open question. I don't think he supports it very much. But, you know, he's one of those ones that I think we can consider being a little bit on the fence, a little bit movable. So um, I think in, in terms of the Pennsylvania delegation, sort of the Pennsylvania atmosphere as it relates to, you know, the national atmosphere, I haven't seen a ton of surprises. Covering the purple state of Pennsylvania, purple like a bruise, is <laughs> Katie Meyer of WHYY Radio. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for having me. An update after we recorded, the Pennsylvania Republicans said they would meet to seat Senator Brewster tomorrow. And now, remembrances of things Trump. Remember when Donald Trump was on Twitter? Also Reddit, Facebook, Twitch, Stripes, Snapchat, Spotify. There was a couple tech companies that I suspect may have been invented two days ago with the entirety of their mission statement being we exist to ban Donald Trump. I heard he was banned from Twilio. Yes, he's no longer on Twilio. But I want for a second to go back to Twitter. Not as much as Donald Trump does, but I would like in this remembrance of things Trump I would like for you to remember not just the bad tweets or the dumb tweets or the dishonest tweets, not when he picked a fight with Baltimore or Ilan Omar or constantly with English. Let us remember 
the retweets. Donald Trump retweeted a conspiracy theory claiming an elderly BLM protester in Buffalo who had to be hospitalized faked his own injury. He retweeted golf cart drivers with pro-Trump signs, but also those drivers had another slogan. A man heard shouting white power in a video retweeted by President Trump. Sometimes he would justify his retweets this way, as when he was confronted with a retweet alleging Joe Biden was involved in the cover-up of faking the killing of Osama bin Laden. That was a retweet. That was a, an opinion of somebody. And that was a retweet. And sometimes Trump would deal with an embarrassing tweets in another way, which is to express no embarrassment whatsoever. That's a famous Mussolini quote. You retweeted it. Do you like the quote? Did you know it was sure. Mussolini? It's okay to know it's Mussolini. Look, Mussolini was Mussolini. Fact check true. But you know who's a wannabe Mussolini? Well, I can't really tell you because Twilio has deplatformed him. And this has been a remembrance of things Trump. And now the spiel. Donald Trump should be impeached. I mean that in both senses of the word should. It ought to happen. Also, it's likely to happen. He should be removed via his own power or the considerable power of the first branch of government. Or even the second. The 25th Amendment would be fine with me. I'm no Harvard Law School professor, but if the Harvard Law School professor that I'm not is Alan Dershowitz, that actually burnishes my credentials. Remember that the rioters, nobody supported them. They got no support from anybody. They got no support from Republicans. They got no support from Democrats. They got no support from right-wingers, left-wingers. Nobody supported them. They lost in the marketplace of ideas. They hurt their a cause. But if we were to unconstitutionally invoke the 25th Amendment against a president who did unpopular things or engaged in a speech that people disagreed with, that would really not stretch the Constitution. It would break the Constitution. Not the left-winger, not the right-winger, not the estate of Robert Goulet, not monkeys at the zoo. Well, go, go back a second there. Oh, the monkey part? Nah, a little earlier, a little uh, The right-wingers? Yeah, that's the one. I would say there are some elements among the right-wingers who supported the rioters. Well, not so much supported as were, were the rioters. As far as this being a gross misuse of the 25th Amendment, it doesn't seem like that to me. Maybe it wasn't intended for this purpose, but the text doesn't say mental incapacitation or physical disability. It literally says when the president is unable to discharge his powers and duties. Seems to fit the situation. Good enough for me. By the way, the next day on the Alan Dershowitz podcast, so the first clip I played the day right after the riots, the next one I'm going to play is the day after that, Dershowitz had expanded his list of those doing more damage to the Constitution than Trump or the rioters, and he mentioned by name Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer because he said they would use the Constitution to rein in Trump, which would be a horrible desecration of the Constitution. This, by the way, I've called the honeybee theory of the Constitution, noting it has a powerful sting, but use it once and it dies. Here's Dershowitz. But it's becoming a worse week for the Constitution because people who ought to know better, uh, particularly incoming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and um, uh, House uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, are posing greater dangers to the Constitution of the United States, to its enduring quality, to the First Amendment, to the 25th Amendment, to the criteria for impeachment. Many do say that's a smattering, a statistically significant smattering. Yeah, we can agree. 
Now, Dershowitz is a First Amendment scholar, quite interestingly, actually refrained in strictly First Amendment terms from raising what's become the most popular argument among Trump supporting conservatives, which is that Donald Trump's Twitter ban bodes poorly for free speech. It's a First Amendment issue. I do support Twitter banning Trump. I support it in principle and in practice. But here's where I want to go on the record with what the principle is. It's not that a person says things that could be considered dangerous. It's not that a person says things that could be interpreted as inappropriate or causing discomfort. It needs to be something like threats that are fairly concrete or, and this next part, this is why I think the ban is apt, threats that might be general, but for which there is ample evidence that they could well result in felonies or violence. And in this case, the ample evidence is that they resulted in felonies and violence. Twitter, to pick a prominent social media platform, is in a little bit of a bind because, yeah, they were inconsistent in their application of the rules. And I know a lot of people are saying, well, this is too late. But then again, he is the president, and that is something to really seriously consider. Not for Twitter's bottom line, but for, and again, not strictly the First Amendment per se, literally, that just concerns government control of speech, but the idea of free speech and the powerful entities that allow it or don't allow it. It is a consideration, I think, and it's nothing to dismiss and it's nothing to easily dismiss because Donald Trump is terrible and has been terrible and we could clearly see this coming. That's how the counter argument would go. I think a platform like Facebook or Twitter was always going to be not perfectly consistent in how they enforce their rules. But once the words lead to actual misdeeds that we have all seen, well, then Twitter is not just within their rights to remove him. They would be wrong not to. Many people right now are saying, you know, Trump should have been off Twitter a while ago and people like him should not be allowed to spread disinformation. And I say, as far as the latter part, it depends how bad, how demonstrable, what the motivation behind the disinformation is, right? We don't need platforms policing the content of speech. It's hard to make always correctly make the judgment about what is information and what is disinformation. That's all legitimate. It's all a legitimate concern. Also, I think it's poor practice to use as test cases the actions of clearly loathsome actors, the silencing of whom we would mostly all cheer for. The test case for freedom of religion shouldn't be, let's shut the Satanists down. No one likes the Satanists. It should be, well, might this infringe on the Catholics in a town full of Episcopalians? Does this impinge on the only Jewish family in a small town in the Bible Belt? But also the Satanists, maybe we should think of the Satanists too. And this brings me to incitement. Because one of the charges about why Twitter should have shut Trump down is that Trump engaged in incitement, not just day of the riots, but clearly had a pattern before of inciting his base, which is to say a very large percentage of the American people. I've been thinking about the charge of incitement or the argument that Donald Trump needed to be banned because his words prompted this insurrection. They did precede it. Did they prompt it? Incitement's been on my mind because Ben Wittes was talking about it on the Lawfare podcast. And Ben pointed out that by its inclusion, the word incitement in the House's impeachment articles, it does open those articles up to some vulnerability. Trump's speech probably doesn't meet the legal definition of incitement. 
I would say it'd be extremely unlikely that it would be judged to be an inciting incident, not just because the bar is so high for what constitutes an inciting remark, but also Trump gave almost the exact same remarks two days prior. If the inciting remarks on January 6th were lies about the results of the 2020 election and an exhortation not to accept those results, well, those were the first words out of Trump's mouth after he said hello to the people of Georgia. There's no way we lost Georgia. There's no way. The rigged, that was a rigged election, but we're still fighting it, and you'll see what's going to happen. We'll talk about it. And the crowd broke into chants of fight, fight, fight on a couple separate occasions. Thank you. He urged the Georgia crowd with pretty much the same words that he urged the D.C. crowd before the riots. And they're not taking this White House. We're going to fight like hell, I'll tell you right now. And also... If you don't go and vote, the socialists, the Marxists, will be in charge of our country. If you don't fight to save your country with everything you have, you're not going to have a country left. Now, of course, just because one crowd didn't riot, and another crowd did, it's not dispositive proof that the words weren't designed to start a riot or couldn't be reasonably constituted as risking a riot, but it does show that Trump's speech that day, the day in Georgia, wasn't explicit enough or unique enough in and of itself to cause an insurrection. What did cause the insurrection? Well, it's everything. It's everything Trump did. It's the speech, but it's not just the speech. It's all the lies and the stoking and the amplification of discredited voices and the use of social media as propaganda. But the articles of impeachment can't say, well, this is impeachment for everything. They just have to say it's for this thing. And this thing was, in fact, bad. It was a thing he needs to be held accountable for. It was just about the worst thing he's done. Was he inciting? Well, just like with Twitter, we don't need to speculate because the people were incited by the speech, by him, by all the crazy theories that he spreads and stokes. Certainly not legal incitement, so I agree with Ben. It's probably a small mistake to include a charge that also overlaps with a criminal charge that you can't prove, even if impeachment isn't a criminal act. So I say, why give him a life raft? Though maybe we needn't worry so much we're talking about a guy who can't stop waving around a harpoon. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Margaret Kelly, who says, This isn't my beautiful house. This isn't my beautiful country. This isn't my beautiful wife. Shayna Roth produces the gist. She says we are better than the bottom 49% of this. Jasmine Ellis helped us this week. She is still trying to define who the we is and who the this is in the this isn't who we are. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. For all the horrors of the past week, she would like to pitch Long John Silver's on the slogan, Arg, we're better than this. The gist, we have uncovered the new branding effort on the part of the Today Explained podcast. We're better than gist. Sean, let's not fight. Let's just gang up to bring down the daily. Oh, great. We're going to get an off-the-record earful from Babaro now. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.